This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing F is for Family. I'll kick us off. F is for Family is an animated dark comedy created for Netflix by stand-up comedian Bill Burr. The first season came out in 2015. It sits at the border between two different kinds of American TV shows. On one side, you have dark, cynical shows built around comedians, shows like Seinfeld and Louie. On the other, you have the animated family comedies, shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy. F is for Family is certainly darker and more cynical than The Simpsons, but it is in many ways much less cynical than Seinfeld. It's similar to BoJack Horseman, which debuted on Netflix the year before. F is for Family is built around a middle-aged man named Frank. Frank works as a baggage handler in an airport in the 70s. Because it's the 70s, that job allows him to own a home and to raise three children alongside his wife, Susan. But when Frank's boss dies, he's chosen for promotion to the lowest rungs of management, giving the family an economic lift. Frank never went to college. As a young man, he was called up to fight in Korea. When he got home, he started having kids, and from that point on, he has had to do whatever was necessary to pay the bills. In the show's opening sequence, a young Frank soars through the air, happy and excited about his life, until he is gradually bombarded with the duties thrust upon him. He tries to dodge the bills, toys, and other assorted treatises of family life, but they just keep coming. He ages, he gains weight, he loses hair, and eventually he just covers his eyes and hopes it will all stop. Frank hates his job, and when he comes home, he wants to do little more than watch TV. If there's trouble at home, he doesn't want to hear about it. When he does hear about it, he gets angry. He swears, and he yells, and he goes out into the garage to hit a punching bag. I made a point to have Helen and Nina watch an episode called Saturday Bloody Saturday. In this episode, Frank's teenage son Kevin reveals that he's getting terrible grades in school. Frank tries to scare Kevin straight. He takes Kevin out of school and brings him to the airport. Initially, Frank pretends he isn't going to the airport. He tells Kevin he's sending him to Vietnam. Kevin cries and begs Frank not to give him to the army. He points out that he's still too young to be drafted. Frank tells Kevin that the army has a new junior recruiting program. Kevin isn't the brightest bulb in the box. He believes his dad, and when they get to the airport, he does not appreciate the prank. Once they're at the airport, Frank is called away from meeting with his boss, the boss, an enormously corpulent man, introduces Frank to his new management position. It's his job to stop his former co-workers from striking. They've picked Frank for management because they know he has sway with the guys. To butter him up, they give him corporate seats to a baseball game. It won't be possible for Frank to stay friends with everyone. Sooner or later, something will have to give. While Frank is in the meeting, Kevin hangs out with the baggage handlers. They goof off, they steal things from the passengers' bags. They take drugs on the job. They look at security videos of gruesome workplace accidents. Eventually, Kevin finds it all a bit overwhelming. He goes looking for his dad. He finds his dad getting a lecture from an angry passenger. The passenger is upset because her medicine has gone missing. As it turns out, the drugs the baggage handlers stole were for this woman's uterine lining. Kevin feels bad about having put his father in this position. He pretends he found the pills in the airport, and he returns them to her. But this isn't enough to placate her. She continues to tell Frank off. Eventually, Kevin intervenes in his father's defense, shouting at the woman to get her to leave his dad alone. On the way home, Kevin tells Frank that he's learned his lesson. Frank promises to take Kevin to the baseball game if he starts trying harder in school. They both have a laugh at the passenger's expense. But then, Kevin starts telling Frank how horrible his job is. It's soul-crushing to have to take this disrespect from people, day in and day out. Frank knows everything Kevin is saying is true. As Kevin continues to go on and on about how dehumanizing Frank's job is, Frank stares at the road, trying to keep it together. The first season of the show ends with Frank using his influence with both labor and management to negotiate a deal that narrowly avoids a strike. But his bosses are angry with him for helping the workers get a better deal than they otherwise would have received. They fire him. 
Frank confronts his corpulent boss in the car. He takes the keys out of his boss's hands and drops the car keys at his feet. Frank's boss is too large to reach them. If he tries to bend over, his gut rams into the steering wheel. Frank jams something into the car door, trapping his boss inside. In the middle of winter, Frank leaves his boss for dead. We find out in season two that Frank's boss survives this incident. After being trapped in the car for a couple days, emergency services discover him and cut him out of the car. Needless to say, Frank's boss ensures he can't get a new job with another airline. Frank is lucky the guy doesn't press charges. This forces Susan to go to work. Initially excited about the opportunity to do something outside the house, Susan quickly learns that work is terrible. She starts coming home in a bad mood and taking out the stress of the day on the family, just as Frank once did. The implication is that it's not the family itself that is the problem. It's the fact that the family depends on deeply alienated labor. Whether this work is done by Frank or Susan makes little difference. The misery the work creates has terrible effects on every member of the family, directly or indirectly. The parent who works is abusive or negligent. The parent who doesn't work feels unappreciated and underutilized. The kids ultimately pay the price. Kevin often says he hates the family. The younger son, Bill, often gets beat up by Kevin and harassed by his sister. And yet, in pure economic terms, this family has it easier than most families have it today. In the 70s, a blue-collar job in the airport will pay a mortgage in a reasonably nice neighborhood. University tuition is cheap. It's possible for the kids to go to college if they get good grades, even though the family doesn't have a lot of cash. Bill Burr created this show in large part as a tribute to his own life. The younger son, Bill, is clearly a stand-in for him, even as the real Bill Burr voices Frank. In the 70s, families like this one were sometimes able to produce artists like Bill Burr. Critics who review F is for Family often focus on the gender and racial dynamics. They ask whether things have gotten better in those areas, and if so, by how much. But when I watch this show, I see the pain capitalism created for working people, even in an era when baggage handlers had family homes. The idea that a baggage handler could own a home now seems like an absurd dream. In the 70s, that dream was reality, but that dream was a nightmare. Horkheimer and Adorno died in the Nixon administration. Their critiques of post-war life were written decades before the oil shocks. Even when it was good, it was bad, and it was bad for lots of reasons we no longer talk about much. But maybe we can buck that trend today. Let's see what Helen has to say. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I didn't know the show, um, but... Yeah, I thought it was interesting that it was set in the 70s. Um, when you look at, so interestingly, as you pointed out, this is a baggage handler who has sort of a middle class life that certainly a baggage handler would not be able to afford today. But it's interesting that if you compare the 1920s to the 1970s, the amount of uh, technical innovation um, the changing nature of society was astronomic. And then if you compare the 1970s to today, there's barely any change. And you could almost, you know, this would be a family who has more money. You know, there's it similar similarities to Malcolm in the Middle, but to, to afford this kind of life, which is alienated in and of itself, but it has only got worse, um, you need a lot more money. But having said that, things are the same. And I think it's kind of in, in many ways the same. And I think it's interesting that um, Frank works at an airport because I think the airline industry is a prime example of this. Because if you think about, we, that he talks at one stage about, um, They've got to build more space for a, a 747 that's coming into the airport. And it's like, we still fly on 747s, you know. There's been very little innovation um, since the 1970s. We fly on planes that are very similar to the 1960s. This is partly due to the fact that um, the plane industry has sacrificed, quote unquote, profit for safety. And um, the technical, you know, Concorde didn't really take off. And the innovations have been, that, that could have happened, have been, um, for foregone in term, you know, for safety. Like now, it's extremely rare to die in a plane crash. And interestingly, this is um, like the plane industry is almost like the 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 good face of capitalism in a way. I mean, there's obviously all kinds of issues with it, um, but it's you know, it's an industry that you can point to where you're like, because almost capitalism, what what works in capitalism happens despite capitalism, because capitalism operates through death drive. So. 
you know, we can look at the plane industry and say like, oh, look how safe it is. And we get to A to B or whatever, partly because there has been a, a sacrifice of um, uh, progress for safety. But this is just an exception that proves the rule. And uh, in terms of like just how abjectly stupid, ineffective, inefficient and wasteful and crap capitalism is. But I think there is something in this um, 1970s. We, we kind of all, you know, this is a very like class conscious show. And a lot of the media products that we see today that have this dimension of class consciousness are distanced from us in some way, whether there's sort of an orientalist element with, you know, things that are allowed to play out in the likes of Parasite that probably wouldn't have flown so much in a uh, more like Occidental, like drama or comedy. Um, and also you get some of these more like darkly comedic, more um, class conscious shows that happen in um 2D animation, these like adult animation. So it kind of allows us to enjoy or to um, experience the kind of class critique at a, at a safe distance. You know, it's sort of, it's okay because it's happening in a, you know, an East Asian country or something like that. Um, but what I thought was interesting was the way in which humor operates in relation to family, this issue of family. And it's interesting that like this is called F for family, not F is for fame or F is for fortune or whatever, which, you know, might be the values of today where, you know, people people are more tied into the ideology of capitalism or the promise of capitalism that they will be the exception, they will be the social media star, whatever. But you know, as Benjamin points out, like even the winners under capitalism lose. So this is even in this situation, it's a it's an alienated situation, but it's definitely better to have some money and the ability to possibly have a family than it is today. And um, so, there, as I say, there, but there, there are similarities, you know, there, there is a similar, like, whether you can have a family or not, there is like, if you do have a family, similar kind of um, struggles and alienation and, and types of repression that play out today. Um, but we have not, what we don't have is like a, a progress in terms of material standards of living or changing like... Um, superstructure kind of emergence from the, the, econ the political economy, of course, because things have just got worse and worse and worse. I mean, this is like this, the 1970s is the cusp of neoliberalism. And it kind of goes to show how neoliberalism has given us like less than nothing. Actually, if it gave us less than nothing, it would mean it gave us something. It's just given us jack shit. But, um, but we still have the same issues, the same, um, you know, disappointments, the same alienation in our work. But the progress that we've been handed instead is a self-policing ideological um, supplement that basically gets us to deny the fact that there has been no progress. I mean, this is why I find this word progressivism so interesting, partly because it's so tied to the ideology of capitalism itself, which basically promises a future wholeness on the horizon and is deterministic and says, we, we know where we're going and we're getting there. But as uh, Hegel says, the elephant Minerva flies at dusk. We have no fucking idea where we're going. And the lie is the promise. And the lie gets us to sacrifice everything. And it's not necessarily whether the promise is good or bad that's the problem. It's the dynamic. But also that, well, if we're talking about progress, what, what progress is there? As, as, we, as we've seen, you know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a technological progress. It's not a progress in terms of living standards. And it's not a, not a change in terms of the evolution of, you know, uh, earlier in the 20th century, there's talk of, you know, repression as it relates to family. But these these issues still exist for those of the, those who are in family. So what we've what we've got instead is a progress, quote unquote, in terms of how we think better, how we explicate our, you know, wokeism. And, you know, we, we're given anxiety because we don't have kind of concrete roles, partly because of the destruction of the family and stuff. And we have this kind of like, instead of being able to... Um, enjoy slash explicate slash come to terms with the um, product of the lie that we've been sold. We have to, because everything has been turned inward in this sort of like progress towards, towards quote unquote auto liberation, we have like an ideological explanation that becomes totalitarian. So instead of it being like um, society has uh, devolved economically, I have a lower standard of living, I can't even afford to have family and be engaged in the kind of alienation that we shit anyway, we become anti-natalists. So no one gets to have children. And actually, this is where I think the kind of humour that exists in this show and that is um, ventriloquized through these characters is really important. 
Um, Alfie has a book coming out next year. Um, we're working on at the moment called Post Comedy. And the thesis is that we're living in a post comedy world. What we see often in terms of comedy in media products is not comedy maybe as we once knew it, as in the political, politically powerful comedy, which is a universal, which um, uses um, essentialist, you know, an irony of essentialism to send up essentialism to access the universal. And there's many ways that comedy is universal, not least because it is um, follows the logic of the unconscious. The unconscious is one thing that we have in common, everybody. But also it's universal in that it targets, you know, we, we talked about this in, in terms of hell or high water with the, the police couple and you have the white older police chief who uses all kind of kind of racist jokes or apparently if you wrote them out without any context, they would seem racist. But in this context, they become the opposite of that because they are saying this essentialism about your group of people. I know you are the exception because we're close and we're fraternal. So it's using the um, the essentialism to send up the essentialism and sort of have this sort of recipro- reciprocity of universalism. But if we watch like comedy to ne- today, it's often like, we all know that men are stupid. Ha, 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 ha. It's, it's hard to kind of explain. And it's kind of, it's not funny when you watch it unless you're kind of, um, wanting to discipline yourself or to, to, um, to show that you have the right values. But it's almost like we're in the in group and we all know. Ha, ha, ha. It's a very kind of, um, patronizing, um, uh, didactic form of comedy, quote unquote. So it's not really comedy, but this is actually funny. And I watched um, an episode called Battle of the Sexes. And it was um, an episode in which um, the husband and the wife have two groups of friends over the the female friends and the male friends. And both in their kind of like women's book group situation and all the guys together, they are alienated and they hate it. And it's and they, they're all sort of laughing at the other group and they kind of come together over um, a kind of a shared experience of lack. But the thing is, it's like, th- these are all these kinds of jokes, um, at, you know, at the expense of women and all these sort of like um, tropes and things like that, that helped people rationalize the alienation they experienced in these sort of dynamics. And now we have these dynamics, or we're not poor enough to have these dynamics, but we don't have the right to enjoy our alienation or to access a kind of radical way of positioning ourselves in relation to this alienation through humor, which points to a universal, the universal of light, the universal of the unconscious. And all we have is a sort of berating, I've got to think this way. You know, our material, as I say, you know, these aren't, these aren't, as you pointed out, Benjamin, these, this kind of alienation is not positive. But now we sort of have a worse situation where we aren't even allowed to, able to explicate. We have to mystify our alienation um, through this sort of progress of ideology. So these shows actually allow us with a distance, because this is set in the 70s, even though it's not so, so different, to, to have access to all these things that are kind of emancipatory through humour in relation to what we have. But they are at a sort of a, a, dist, a safe distance where we're allowed to kind of enjoy it. Um, yes, I think that's all I have to say for now. All right, let's hear what Nina has to say. <clears throat> so uh, I, I didn't really enjoy this, uh, this show, <laughs> the two episodes that I, that I watch. Um, I have a sort of perhaps under-theorized suspicion of animation in general, which I've mentioned before on this, on this show. Uh, and I was thinking about this also in relation to kind of comics and, and graphic art more generally. Um, even though I used to be a massive fan of comics in the 90s, I used to read a lot of indie and alternative comics uh, because there was a comic shop in my town near my school uh, and it was one of the few places to to kind of hang out and my, my friend Matt now runs it, uh, somebody from my school. It still exists, although he had to expand into toys because toys are the only thing that make money, <laughs> not comics. But anyway, uh, so... Uh, leaving my generalized suspicion of the medium aside, and I and I have to say I don't think it's a particularly beautifully drawn cartoon, and it's not intended to be. Uh, I, I think it lacks the the sort of um, trenchant obscenity of South Park, or the sort of slight absurdity of The Simpsons, or or even the kind of grotesque humor of Family Guy. Uh, I 
it's it's yet another sort of cartoon about a family. Uh, it's as 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 mentioned, set in the seventies, and and my my thinking really about what's going on here is actually from the standpoint of the audience is less to do with the content of the show, which I, I take, you know, both Benjamin and Helen's point about points about capitalism, family wage. Uh, there's also an interesting scene in, in episode two where the wife is crying. You know, it's a bit like uh, Betty Friedan's uh, problem without a name, this kind of, you know, inchoate depression of the sort of housewife. Um you know, and and but but what's really going on? So I'm interested in this question of who are these shows for? And we've had a, a space of shows in recent years that play upon uh, a nostalgia of a very specific kind. And I was trying to formulate this, and it's something like a nostalgia for something that people generally who are watching it don't remember. And it's not a nostalgia necessarily for something that's good, but of something that's bad, but is a less worse bad than the present that the the audience watching experiences, right? So if that makes any sense, so, so there are shows like Stranger Things, which plays upon a kind of similar fantasy of the especially for the children, the adolescents, of an unmonitored life, which is to say a life that, that I experienced too, in fact, before mobile phones, before people really knew where anyone was, as long as you were kind of home by tea and everyone sort of had a vague awareness that you might be at someone's house in the village or in the wherever you live. Um, so there's a kind of nostalgia for, I think, an experience that a lot of millennials and Zoomers don't have access to, which is the kind of the, the freedom of play. Uh, and of course, it's kind of... Uh, presented as dangerous, potentially dangerous, which it kind of was, like, you know, <laughs> in this show, um, as sort of potentially physically dangerous. You might encounter bullies, you might get lost, you might get fall off a roof, you might uh, play with asbestos and so on. So, and in Stranger Things, you have a similar nostalgia for the kind of bike gang, you know, the, the, which becomes a kind of adventure, which is fantastical, which then plays out in a kind of cosmic sort of uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, sort of fantasy way. Um, and so there are quite a lot of shows. And we talk about Mad Men, Mad Men too, which is an experience that, that none of us would have, <laughs> would have had because it's set much earlier. Um, and I'm not saying that all period shows, whether they're set in the 20s or 60s or 70s or 80s, are all doing the same thing. Um, but I think we have to be cautious uh, about thinking about what is actually being um, tapped into, right? If you think about a mainstream Netflix audience, people who are watching this perhaps in bulk or whatever, I can't remember the way, uh, you know, where you watch an entire series, there's a way of talking about that Uh <laughs> I can't sort of remember. Binge watching. Um, binge watching. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I don't know. Yes. Yeah, so, so this binge watching thing. So let's say they're almost like set up for you, designed for you to do this, right? Like the next episode clicks on automatically, and you're like, oh, maybe I should go to sleep. Maybe I should do something else. You know. But we live in a world of infinite distraction. There's like, of course, we do. You know, podcasts are part of this. Uh, I, I, you know, Civ Five. I, I must have played at least twelve hundred hours of Civ Five. <laughs> <laughs> um and so on you know like in a way our, our life is 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 often comprised of things that are uh, blurring the boundaries between work and, and distraction and and you know we we are endlessly procrastinating creatures uh, it's almost impossible to do anything ever this is why envy is such a problem because we envy people who actually manage to do anything uh, and then we hate them because they have and then we hate ourselves because we haven't um so anyway back to back to the kind of the, the the fetish for the the worst that is nevertheless a less bad worse than the present. Um, so what is the specific nature of this less bad worse it, as presented by F for Family? And I only only managed to watch two episodes, so I am not an expert in this in this show. I think it is partly what Benjamin talks about, which is the the family wage, which is the idea that nevertheless, uh, you know, there is a certain uh, structure which is a normative one, in fact. And however much you hate your family, however annoying things are, however depressed you are, there's no question I can see in this show of it being anything other than what you're supposed to do. There is a figure who's like the next door neighbor, who's like a kind of another 70s sort of cliche, I suppose, who is 
uh, very flashy, who has lots of girlfriends, who has lots of consumer goods. In a way, he's a kind of prototype for a sort of, I don't know, uh, 80s greeders goods, but not quite. He's more kind of post-hippie, I suppose. But he's he's someone who enjoys his life, right? So he's the figure of jouissance who's who's actually quite friendly and nice to his neighbours, including the, the, the main father, but who generates a certain form of envy and rivalry. Uh, in the first episode I watched, it, it was over a TV about who was going to show the fight for the neighbourhood. And there's also this fantasy, therefore, of having a community. You know, what is it to sit and have beers with your neighbours and, and to even have that level of um, social interaction such that there could be a debate about whose house you go over to watch the, the boxing match. There's also that that idea of the dissemination. You know, the match is on at a specific time. Everybody has to watch it at the same time. This is the era of TV. This is not the era of the internet and, and platforms and you can watch whatever you want whenever you want, right? So there is, again, this kind of structure. So ultimately, I think this show... You know, and it's, it doesn't matter that I don't particularly like it, right? But it's, it's it's not interesting, I think, whether one enjoys something or not. This is like the least interesting uh, response or level of talking. Um, but I think it's to do with this structured life so that however much you resent your life in this structure, in a way, there is a dominant normative uh, way of being. And in a sense, it is the best one or it is, in, in fact, the least worst one. And I think this is what this show is perhaps about. And I wonder how many younger people watching this show feel uh, a kind of sadness, perhaps, for a an image of an American life, family life, that they are perhaps feel cut off from, or perhaps is impossible for them economically, socially, um, politically, uh, and otherwise. Yeah, I, th- I think that's super interesting. I I have thought about this a lot in terms of Mad Men. This nostalgia for something that is enjoyable in that you you can only enjoy in so far as there are barriers you can't jouir sans entrave as like the 68ers trying to have us you know and part of our problem today and part of the economic um situation is as a result of that but yes because often we have you know in the kind of like um the colonial mindset is like you know this drab and dreary here but el dorado is across the horizon and um but obviously there's no promise in um mad men other than it it's a bit um, more um, glamorous and probably a bit better than it is now. Um, but the thing is, it's interesting in terms of enjoyment. And it's it's like, so enjoyment is what you get from um, desiring, having a barrier to do your desire and, you know, um, relating to the fantasy on the other end of this barrier. And this is what makes life worth living. And if you access uh, the fantasy object too much, then you might, you know, slip into melancholia, or it doesn't. It depresses you in that it doesn't fulfil you because it is not the totalizing thing that you imagined it to be. Because nothing in this divided universe is. But then on the other side, there is like a depression that happens when um, you're too far from you. You can't enjoy because you're too far from that object. So, you know, I do think that today we're in this sort of like depressive, also anxious age. Anxiety is to do with not being grounded enough through material parental um, support structures to get to the point of being able to enter into enjoyment. So it's like the enjoyment is is important. It's life-giving, not, you know, this sort of um, melancholic having or depressive not having. But in a sense, we're kind of like the problem today. And this is to do with this idea of like, you know, it's, it's, the, the best of a bad bunch, you know, like life is not perfect. Life is a bit shit, but you can, you can um, make something uh, productive and fulfilling knowing that it's divided, it's going to end, it's difficult, but things get so bad that you can't even enter into the process of the dynamic of desire, which is to do with not having in the first place. So there is a worse than, you know, I think ideologically the idea is, oh, you're unhappy because you don't have the thing. That's only part of the story. It's more dialectical than that. And it's more depressing to not even be able to enter into the orientation towards the thing that you're not even going to be able to have. Um, and I think a lot you know, of anxiety is, is um, well, anxiety kind of positions you in relation to desire in, in, a, in a difficult way. But at least you can enjoy <laughs> a different era that was, as you point, you know, point out, there was a danger or it was difficult or there was alienation, you know, but a degree of alienation, a more reasonable alienation is better than 
this sort of depressive, anxious, anxiety producing nothing. You know, we talked about play last week in terms of like, in order to have play, you have to have rules. A game has rules. It has borders. It has a board, a board game, you know. Um, and we're in this sort of morass of, yes, materially having less and less and less and less, but also not being able to engage in an enjoyment which if if we were, if this subjectival shift was able to happen, but it can't because this, you know, th- this material reality has an effect on the precarity of the fa- familial circumstance. And this leads to a la- less and less and less interpersonal support, recognition, the kind of subjective support that's necessary to enter into a solid sense of self. So it all kind of ties into each other. But we are in this kind of messy morass of nothing right now. Well, and I think this is often resulted even in people getting nostalgic for things like the Middle Ages. We have all these medieval shows and people into medievalism and Bronze Age stuff. I mean, it doesn't even have to be something that's even sort of accessible. You can romanticize any period in history. And romanticizing the Middle Ages, the only reason to do that, I mean, technologically, in every obvious way, the Middle Ages are less comfortable. Um, the, The reason to do it is just for stability of role, knowing what you're supposed to do, having something clear to do. That's what people miss about the Middle Ages. Uh, We even have people now who are nostalgic about peasant life and talk about how the peasant Mm. didn't have to work as many hours and had a sense of community. Uh, It's not just people who want to be aristocrats or want to be knights. There are people who at this point express nostalgia for the kind of rural uh, communal ethos of the agrarian peasant society. So, I think there's there's quite a lot of that going on. And so what we tend to get from people who make television shows and movies about this stuff is something which taps into that, but which is supposed to lead you back out of it again. So I've made this point before in reference to Northman, for instance, uh, where it's made for the person who is nostalgic, but it's made to shepherd them back into an endorsement of the liberal status quo. So... In this show, for instance, yeah, you're watching it because you're nostalgic for the 70s. Maybe you like Bill Burr and you're sympathetic to the Frank character uh, and you, you know, wish that you were Frank or you wish that you, you know, were a man who had a house. But as you watch the show, you're confronted with the terrible ways in which Susan is treated by uh, the men in the town, by the men in um, her place of work. You're confronted with... The, the miserable experiences that the kids have of getting yelled at by their dad, of, of having nothing to do, of being aimless. And in some ways, the nostalgia becomes a device for bringing people back to the contemporary society. If you emphasize the ways in which the historical societies fall short, you can then get people to endorse the progress narrative. And the critics who review these shows in these movies always take it this way. They always go, ah, you know, look at these terrible things that were going on. Uh, have we improved? Are we better people? And so it becomes this shepherding back move. I, I also wanted to pick up the point about the neighbor. So as you continue to watch the show, there are all these moments where the neighbor seems to be having a good time and Susan will, will say, oh, he seems like such a free spirit. What a happy man. And Frank will go, he's a drug addict, Susan. <laughs> he's going to kill somebody, Susan. He'll, he'll hit you over the head with, you know, this reality of, of course, that life, you know, is just going to end terribly. It must, surely, because it's not his. Uh, and at one point, toward the end of the first season, the neighbor actually tells Frank that he admires him and looks at Frank's life as, you know, that's a great life. That's, you know, the quintessential American life. Wow, man, you're living the dream. Uh, and so, even though Frank has been looking at this guy with a mix of envy and disdain, uh, the guy actually has a, a positive impression of Frank. He, Even though he lives this hippie lifestyle, he doesn't view that as making him superior to Frank, or uh, he doesn't view that, that bachelor lifestyle as better than the nuclear family lifestyle. He's not viewing it in that kind of competitive lens. So, I think that's one of the interesting directions that the show goes with that. He doesn't just, it's not just this envious antagonistic relationship. It gets kind of developed and deepened over time. Uh, Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, it's the, what we have today, like the ideology of imagining that there's this uncastrated other is what leads to totalitarian and reactionary thinking. And so, 
but we're not allowed to say things often that you might get deemed a conservative as if that's a really offensive thing to call somebody or a reactionary. If you have these more, you know, you say something like, oh, this person's a drug addict or, oh, you know, this person, this ideological thing claims that this group of people are really happy now in this form of um, going after someone. And if you say, well, you know, they're divided subjects too, or well, you know, there's no promise there, or well, you know, they're not that happy, or well, you know, maybe they're depressed because of this, that and the other, you can be called a reactionary. But actually, the thing that generates true, you know, we, we've talked about this so much in terms of the, the, um, the you know, the, these words that sort of end conversation when actually they're nothing to do with that dynamic and perhaps the, the ideology that's engaged in uh, pretending to be against that is precisely the ideology because it believes in an uncastrated other and wholeness and completeness and perfection. It, it engenders a totalitarian reaction. So, um, but this, this show kind of like taps into the present moment and people's frustrations and the lack of what they have and the lack of, for instance, being able to um, speak to traditional values in their familial setting. You know, you see this a lot with um, adults who have children who are maybe caught up in certain movements today who, you know, they might find what's going on shocking or they might say, well, on the other hand, this or well, on the other hand, that. But, you know, one might be deemed a reactionary for having those sort of ideas. But this show um, ventriloquizes some of these ideas in a family setting in relation to um I don't know if we'd call them like traditional values, and the viewers get to it enjoy the, that that um, uh, the presence of these comedic, you know, takes on traditional values without having to feel like they're a reactionary. Well, people want an alternative to what's going on, and the left is not offering an alternative. And because the left is not offering an alternative, but is instead arguing, well. You know, in a kind of Habermasian sense, you have to go through this. You have to keep going forward through it uh, to get to what's better. And therefore, you have to accelerate whatever's going on so that you can get through it to what is better. This faith in there being something better without it being specified, because, of course, for Marx, you can't have blueprints for the future society. You can't specify what the future society will be. So the left is in this position of saying, well, you can't go back. You have to keep going to something in the future that we can't really describe to you. Uh, and because of that lack of description, there's nothing for the ordinary person to hold on to or to get excited about. And there is a lack of willingness to offer an, uh, an image that is attractive to the ordinary person. And so the ordinary person gets interested in the past because the past is at least meaningfully different in various ways from this. And then gets condemned for being reactionary as a consequence instead of, of offered something else. Mm -hmm. And I think that the big problem with the left right now is that the left doesn't really offer a distinct alternative to the status quo. And insofar as it tries to, it's with things like co-ops that don't meaningfully resolve a lot of the issues that people are having with this. Uh, or, you know, they'll say things like, uh, you know, that they support the elements of a social democratic welfare state. But then when left wing politicians get elected, they don't do very much to develop any of that or give people any real reason to think that this stuff is going to come about, you know, in the states with mm -hmm. with the progressive caucus and its its inability to effectively advocate for any kind of economic change and constant tendency to center. Um, it's kind language of games. Yeah. I just wanted to go back to something Helen was saying earlier about about lack, and I think I think this show is also very indicative of a certain uh, a different kind of scarcity as joy, right? And and this is not the kind of scarcity that is the kind of WEF you will own nothing and you will be happy idea. It's the scarcity as joy that comes from a world in which there is limited access to specific consumer goods. So, for example, the scene, I think maybe this is my favorite scene of the, the teenage boy putting on his prog 
record, right? So like this is a new genre of music. He's got the one record that he will listen to a hundred times. It's the only one he can afford. He's literally exposing himself to a sort of, uh, you know, unique and new thing. And he's only got one version of it. And he plays it to his father in the car. And they have a little discussion about, about music and how anyone could get, get into different genres of music. And it's a world in which there is limited access, both financially, but also, let's say, um, conceptually, right? The world of, of, of encountering books and records, you know, and I, I still remember this world where the only way you'd have access to them is, is if someone lent you them or if there was one in your house or you listened to the radio or you heard it on TV. There wasn't this kind of immediate total access to the entire history of human um, aesthetic and cultural production right? Which brings with it its own kind of sadness, which is what happens when you're confronted with a sort of infinite rage, like, like everything, you know, it's, it's, it's in a way harder to get into something specific, I think, when you have everything on the internet kind of basically there. There's, there's no more randomness in the same way that there was when someone would say, hey, let me lend you this record. It's amazing. Or someone would make you a little tape of their favorite record. And then you would go and listen to their tape that they made you lovingly, you know, like sort of a hundred times. Uh, and I think there's also a nostalgia for this, this world <laughs> of the limited uh, scarcity as joy. And I think you also see this ironically performed in shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm which are obviously post-internet, they're very rich people, they have access to technically everything. And yet, what does Larry choose to get upset about? He's always being slightly, oh, there's a word I was going to use, which I can't use, it's very offensive. He's always feeling like he's being screwed over by the universe. So when he gets his prawns from the Chinese restaurant, there's, there's not, a, there's like a prawn missing, right? So even though he could buy all the prawns in LA, that the fact is in a particular, uh, instance or an event, there is a, there is a lack, there's a scarcity that triggers a whole ca sort of cavalcade of, you know, the story, uh, whether it's his coffee isn't quite right or, or whatever. Like they have to sort of artificially create a form of scarcity which kind of um, generates this humorous uh, quest or this desire for, for 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 wholeness perhaps you know because because in a way they have everything you know they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're very very rich people they could literally you know I guess in one show I didn't finish watching the season but Larry like buys a coffee shop just to sort of spite somebody you know I mean there's this level of like kind of mimetic uh, absurdity um, and I really like Benjamin's point on the the medi like you can fetishize any era like it's I was reading Don Quixote recently and already that the book is so, so early but he's it's already a book about people fetishizing genres and, and acting out in a, a sort of fantastical and silly way um their relation to a sort of fetishization of a previous heroic era and uh, it's totally true when game of thrones was massive i was teaching philosophy and i had students really humorously trying to convince me that there really were dragons in the middle ages and that you know this is some sort of accurate depiction of of how things really were uh, as a sort of joke and we'd end up in these kind of discussions about you know what is, is, is the Game of Thrones depicting a real world and, and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this, yeah, it's something to do with the access to very little somehow. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we enjoy on that, this? On that point, there's an episode of, of this show where Kevin needs to answer a history question. Uh, who is the president who had the shortest term in office? And they don't have an encyclopedia in the house, so he has to go to the library to get this answer. And along the way, he's waylaid by his friends who, you know, invite him to do drugs instead of going to the library. <laughs> As it happens, one of them, you know, does have the answer, does know it. So he gets the answer from the friend and ends up just having a, a fun time out with his friends and still ends up with the answer that he was after. But I think that kind of underlines this point about the rareness uh, and specificity. Also, Kevin comes to have this fantasy that he's going to become a rock star and that by becoming like a, a musical superstar, he'll save the family economically from his father's unemployment. Of course, the band that Ke Kevin is obsessed with is like this Lord of the Rings tribute band, 
And it has music in that genre has no possibility of becoming big enough for it to have the kind of function that Kevin is hoping for. But Kevin doesn't know that. And it's the 70s. So bands out of garages are still a thing that happens in the 70s, although rarely. And that's a, that's another thing that, that stuck out to me as I watched this. The possibility of, of an artist emerging out of what would seem to us to be a class background that is not compatible with that. Uh, it's still something that is, while a romantic possibility, not entirely beyond the realm of what could happen. I just wanted to uh, pick up on what you were saying about the left and presenting an image of what's possible, because... Of course, on the flip side of this, the liberal, quote-unquote, left, or the left wing of capital slash capitalism as such, ties itself to, um, you know, promises. And one thing that we see is, as you as you say, like Marx doesn't offer us a brief blueprint, but talks very small amount about communism, and you get sort of this promise of communism, where it then becomes the dream of capitalism itself, turns into a commodity, and you actually have this, um, we have this today, this sort of, it's, it's within the logic of utopianism and you have a totalitarian um, a liberal investment in a, in a utopia where you promise something, but because it's not logically possible in this universe, like uh, uh, communism as described by Marx is not a utopia. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's contradiction is within it, but you you start to have to engage in this oppositional logic to sustain the fantasy. So the reason why we don't have it is this group. And you see this, um, for instance, in the what happened um, with uh, the most recent, recent elections in the UK in terms of how a liberal left, um, because it became uh, tied to this ideology of promise, um, starts to... Uh, have a logic where it's like, well, we don't have this. We're not getting there because these people don't have the right values. They haven't been brought along. And this becomes a more siloed and divisive um, system, which is conducive to capitalism because you always have an enemy and you always have a promise behind an enemy, which is what generates product selling. And you can't, in that logic, create uh, political change, which has to happen always in the here and now and has to be based on some kind of universality. So the flip side is, if there's too much of a promise, it gets tied up in the logic of capitalism, becomes more, uh, sustains division, oppositional thinking, siloing, prevents political change, and the whole sorry story continues on even worse. And this is obviously this kind of like misreading of the left, uh, misreading of Marx through a capitalist ideology, and you get sort of fully automated luxury communism type stuff. You get, we know where we're going, we have the right values. If only people were disciplined enough and treated people in X way or had this, these values that we learned at university, then when actually there's something much more um, imminent and present about political change. As in, you have to you have to engage in political change in the present moment, and this involves recognizing some kind of universality within everybody. Yeah, and Marxism, as it, it existed in the twentieth and nineteenth centuries, was grounded on the idea that armies consisted of individual soldiers, mm-hmm. large numbers of individual soldiers, who, if they were not in the army, would be workers, and who, when they left the army, would be workers, and so. If you have workers who are upset, they are the ones with the guns, or they can quickly and easily become the ones with the guns, and they can compete with or be significant, substantial parts of the military, and their defection can lead to the collapse of the state, therefore, in a very straightforward way. As we automate everything, we also automate the military and make the military less dependent on large numbers of individual workers. And it also becomes more possible in a situation where you do have large numbers of people who are immiserated. If you don't need as many soldiers to have an effective military, you can pay those soldiers more and lift them out of the working class and make them into a a kind of uh, professional, professional class. The professional army is in many ways a professionalized army in the sense that, you know, it's can occupy an economic status which you don't grant to the rest of the population. That's not to say that currently in the United States, the 
you know, ordinary person who enlists ends up in a position that is dramatically better than the ordinary American. But we could imagine a case in which gradually the military evolves in that direction. I think it is in the process of evolving in that direction. It needs fewer and fewer individual soldiers. The soldiers who are in the military can be given a higher standard of living than the ordinary citizen. And then that creates a loyalty relationship between the soldier and the state and makes the soldier uh, more loyal to the state than to the general population. The armies of the 19th and 20th centuries were fundamentally different, and that made revolution more possible in ways that I think a lot of theorists are reluctant to grapple with. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not just that the economy changes, the military the, mm -hmm. and the, the way the state power is deployed has also changed dramatically it's interesting because you mentioned you know like um, the likes of south park and the simpsons and obviously th this is a dark comedy and it touches on themes that like aren't that uh voiced um in in terms of mainstream media in terms of like the class contradiction but also yeah comment uh so there's something about anima animation which allows for you know certain kinds of humor certain kinds of um uh what would you call it? Transgressiveness. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit more on this kind of animation issue. I mean, I was thinking about it earlier and I was like, I feel a bit like uh, how I imagine Plato feels about kind of, you know, po poetic flute music or something. Like, I think it's really dangerous. <laughs> but I can't really say why. I, th I think there's something kind of, in how, well, it is, you know, like, and, and again, I mean, this, this is a ridiculous thing to say, as if I'm dismissing the entire history of, of, of you know, cartoons or bon dessinée or Japanese drawing. You know, there's a, there's a whole tradition here that I'm sort of, you know, somehow intuitively opposing in a, in a really incoherent way. But I, th I think it might be partly to do with the fact that you can get a very strong emotional response from cartoons and animation and it, it's obviously at a distance from any kind of realism and it's not like I, I would defend realism as the only possible way of depicting life or that cinema should be realistic or that photography should be photorealistic or that art should be representational right so again not sure where this is going from but I, I think there's something potentially overtly emotionally manipulative, more emotionally manipulative about animation because of its sort of um, simplicity and its distanciation. But also it, it, you know, like the family, you know, in a way this world is sort of quote unquote recognisable, even if we have all these issues with net nostalgia and dating, it, it, you know, it's a world that we recognise as houses and garages and people and dogs and, you know, it's not, it's not a totally fantastical world. Um, and again, I, I I'm not sure. In, it's maybe that animation can take shortcuts that would actually be much harder to generate if something was more realistic. And I'm enough of a Platonist to sympathize with the critique of mimesis and of imitation. And the more layers of imitation you have, the more likely it is that things go wrong. It's one of the reasons why this whole AI thing is inherently a flawed enterprise. They're using language interfaces to build the AI. So the AI doesn't engage with reality, it engages with words. Words are an imitation of concepts in human brains, which are the products of human beings interfacing with reality. Words are very far removed from reality, which is why for Plato, words are inherently not trustworthy. And that's why Plato wrote dialogues, which for him are more like real conversations than uh, a philosopher just writing a book or just giving a view. So I, I'm sympathetic. You know, that's why Plato says, throw the poets out of the city. Don't let them in the ideal city. They will lead people astray. I do, however, think that that critique applies to all art. Now, there is an extra layer of mimesis in animation. And I think you're right about that. But I, I think it does apply to all art. And I think if we really bought that argument and took it all the way down, it would exclude most art. No, sure. I mean, this have. is why. No, I mean, I can't. I can't maintain this position, right? And yeah. I can't defend it because, no, of course. I mean, I, you know, I spent my life listening to like abstract avant-garde music and watching art house cinema, and you know, like, I mean, I'd be an absolute 
like idiot if I if I tried to pursue this as a kind of axiomatic point, point right? Yeah. But it's a reason to be extra suspicious, maybe, of animation, a l- an extra reason to be suspicious. We should always be suspicious of art insofar as art can mislead us about reality. Maybe yes. there's an extra reason with animation. <laughs> the human of flat design thing, you know, there is something yeah. sinister about that. And um, obviously, I mean, I, I think... I uh, would be pro things like that apply to everybody and certain rules in society have to respect for safety and to respect other people and all this kind of stuff. So I'm not like some anarchist that's like, don't respect the road signs. But there is something sort of, you know, um, eerie about the human of flat design. Yeah, I mean, this is a concept that Eli Schiff, the sort of very critical design designer and design theorist, came up with a good many years ago now, actually, to describe a tendency which has only increased in its magnitude. And and we will have all seen this kind of design. It's the sort of corporate uh, diversity and equality. It's the graphics of the woke era. And it consists of these human beings, often sort of slightly elongated with sort of faceless or like green or purple with like the odd eyes and curly hair. And they're sort of, you know, it's it's an attempt to depict a sort of diverse but not specific human mass Right. And it's often used on literature that's to do with this kind of propagandistic exercise. And, and you know what's partly going on, which is the avoidance of any direct representation, because nobody wants to be told off for not having enough of the right type of person or enough of different kinds of people. Right. So it's an attempt to fudge the question, mm-hmm. actually, of representation in this absolutely banal you know, flat is the right word. Uh, it's absolutely omnipresent. Uh, it's really grotesque. It's very yeah. aesthetically unappealing, totally corporate. Um, you know, and Eli Schiff was very uh, right, very prescient to point to this as the, if you like, the the design of our era. Um, yeah, and it, it kind of points to the idea of like the flag today, right? And flags historically, mm. I mean, flags are of such a contentious issue in Northern Ireland where they re- represent something more archaic in terms of nationalism um, or um, unionism or whatever. And a um, bit again, like, you know, often the, the kind of like this flat cartoon-like attempt to represent everything. Now it's becoming ridiculous in terms of like, the diversity flag, it's just like thing after thing after thing, as if this can really convey anything, but as a way to sort of like corporately um, mystify uh, class contradiction, obviously on, on, on one level, but also uh, appease all kinds of other elements, uh, issues in society that are a result of the class contradiction with a sort of like childlike splodge. And, you know, that, but it's kind of ironic that in the era where Things things become more and more and more, um, you know, um, right side of history, quote unquote, and denigrating of things like um, national pride, which involves flags. You know, it's ironic that like a flag has been the thing that kind of takes up this two dimensional uh, attempt to represent something in an icon in this very basic way. I, I do want to say something for animation. It's a lot cheaper. Mm. to do the 70s in animation than it yeah. is to do all the costumes and all of the details that go into making something like Mad Men. Uh, all of the period pieces are enormously expensive. If you need, you know, suits of armor for medieval guys, it's very expensive. But if you do it in animation, you could do it really cheap and it's easy to get it uh, you know, visually more accurate because you don't have to deal with shortages of stuff or difficulties in finding stuff. You don't have to make mock-ups of stuff out of cheap material that isn't really akin to what people were, were wearing or were using. So, I, I do think it has that benefit. And when animation is grounded enough that it doesn't become overly ridiculous, it can be a more affordable way to talk about certain kinds of things. And that makes it maybe a little, some of those issues more accessible artistically to a wider range of people than just, you know, really big budget studios that can do you know, huge, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type movies. Uh, yeah, so I, I do want to say that for animation. And sometimes the stuff that's less grounded can be interesting insofar as it can present you with, you know, science fiction scenarios that, again, would be difficult to do credibly live action. Fair enough. I like animation. animation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're about... At an hour. So we're going to wrap up. 
And we're going to go do the B-side for our Patreon listeners at patreon.com slash the lack podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.